Just over a week from today, it'll be the 9th of May. It'll be Victory Day. But what kind of victory, or more to the point, victory for whom? Let's look at four different perspectives. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Last week, Nikolai Patrushev, the sinister and powerful Secretary of the Security Council, had an interview in the official government newspaper Resiska Gazeta, which I basically characterise as setting out the, the hardliner manifesto for what should happen in Russia. And I talk about this in a, in a Twitter thread that then became an article for the Moscow Times. I'll leave a link in the programme notes and I won't sort of try and cover entirely the same ground. But I think it's important that precisely the, the hardline Silovic, the men of force, um, interests are putting out their own vision in some ways for what they want to happen. Because I think it's worth noting that from their point of view, in a way, they can have a victory without a victory. In other words, a victory at home, which may be actually predicated on things continuing to go badly in Ukraine. And I should stress this is a policy victory. This is not necessarily about a rise to power or whatever. Um, I notice that there are some people picking up on the uh, suggestions slash allegations in the General SVR telegram channel that purports to be from a general in the Foreign Intelligence Service. Um, it's been widely linked, in fact, to the uh, conspiracy theorist political pundit Valerie Salavey. And frankly, anyone who takes that particular channel, or most of these anonymous channels that claim to come from exceedingly high-placed individuals, seriously is, is, is making a big mistake. But his claim was that uh, Putin is going to be having some operation, and meanwhile, Patrushev will be in charge. Well, that's exceedingly questionable. It is constitutionally impossible. Um, actually, if the president is incapable of uh, performing his duties, then that devolves onto the prime minister, Mishustin. Um, it would also create all kinds of other furore. But by heavens, it makes for a good sensationalist story. So that may be the answer. So it's not about taking power. It's about actually having their vision of Russia being imposed. And well, again, if I if I go back to just simply sort of the actual article itself, it it says much of what you'd expect that uh, you know Russia is in an essentially existential political struggle against a big bad West that essentially means a big bad America that is determined to impose its social, political, and cultural hegemony on the world. And because Russia refuses to bend the knee, then Russia therefore has to be humbled. The Ukrainians are simply being used as proxies in this struggle. Um, and it's interesting because on the one hand, there is this assertion, after all, that the Ukrainians and the Russians are basically the same people. But at the same time, uh, Patrushev presents the Ukrainians as being you know, thugs, corrupt, incompetent, criminal, and indeed, this is particularly in reference to their flocking in their millions into Europe, disease-laden, which doesn't really say much for Russians, if that's what he's claiming. But basically, it's essentially about the fact that Russia is indeed a beleaguered fortress, and that all national efforts must be mobilised to defending the fort. And in particular, he talks about the need to move the economy towards sovereignization of the financial system. And more generally, he kind of has some rather weird attacks on those people who are obsessed with market economics. 
and that in fact there are other ways of running an economy, which very much sounds like an appeal to some kind of nationalisation, statization. Honestly, this to me sounds like Soviet economics, but just given a little bit more of a, of a sort of paint job and, and a little sort of zhuzhing up. And we know how well Soviet economics worked. And I think this is important because, as I said, it essentially em emphasises that the, there is a real debate going on behind the scenes. Look, obviously, this is all very monolithic. No one can possibly seem to be in any way breaking ranks over whether or not the war is a, is a necessary and rightful thing to do. But on the other hand, we know that there is clearly debate. First of all, on economic policy, and this is very much, I would say, framed as the technocrats, the relatively liberal, and look, I'm saying relatively liberal, at least in, in economic terms. Um, it was just people like Mishustin, like, frankly, most of the presidential administration hierarchy outside the Security Council Secretariat, much of the cabinet, even people like uh, Deputy Prime Minister Belousov, who are pretty statist in normal times, but who are alarmed with the thought that, that this become, might become a sort of fully state-controlled economy, and they're sort of aligned, therefore, with the technocrats, and clearly central bank chair Nabulina is amongst them. So that's one camp, and then a much, much smaller and, frankly, much, much more economically illiterate Silovic uh, security apparatus um, interest group who see this as really just simply a way of turning the whole state into a war-fighting machine and, if we're honest, also the more, that, as it were, you get nationalisations and more enterprises being brought under state control, the more opportunities there are for private enrichment. There's always the personal agenda. Now, on this, you know, Patrushev has set out his stall, but frankly, I don't think it's convincing many, many people at the moment. And I'll come back to that point about at the moment, at the end of this segment. Although, at first, the Siloviki seemed to be making the running. In the very few first few days of the war, there was all kinds of blood-curdling talk about particularly you know, foreign enterprises that uh, were suspending their operations in Russia, being forcibly nationalised and so forth. Very quickly, the technocrats actually managed to regain the ascendancy. And it seems to have been because of Nabulina's uh, attempts to try and resign from her position, seems to have shocked or startled Putin sufficiently that he was willing to actually hear... Some sense, again, we, we never know quite how unsugarcoated the information that Putin has presented is, but nonetheless, some sense of what's going on in the country from Mishustin and also from Anton Vino, the head of the presidential administration, and he's been so far willing to let the, the technocrats have their way. So at the moment, on that, the Siloviki are unsuccessful, but as I said, it may well change. But beyond economic policy, there's also politics. And in this, we actually see more of a sense of the Siloviki beginning to kind of frame how they see things going. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got the repressions, we've got the increasing pressure on anyone who wants to say anything kind of critical of the regime and current policy, or even who dares to suggest that the special military operation is a war, even though Putin may well declare it as such one day. But we've also got, for example, a growing debate about whether or not the elections, which are due to be held in September, the so-called Unified Day of Elections, local elections, gubernatorial ones and so forth, actually whether they, or at least the campaigns necessary for the elections to be, I was going to say meaningful, shall we say meaningful in a Russian context. I mean, the elections may not be that meaningful, but nonetheless, there has to be at least the appearance of campaigning and, and, and so forth. Well, whether or not that is a distraction in, in time of special military operation, this kind of thing. So in some ways, where the Siloviki are losing the argument on the economy at the moment, they are instead beginning to make a longer-term argument about politics. And more or less, I think their, their pitch is, look, in times of war, it's quite normal for normal, a sort of general kind of political debate to be suspended. We need to focus on that. And therefore, perhaps it's time to dispense with this fig leaf of democracy. A fig leaf, which, let's be honest, has been shrinking to scandalous proportions um, you know, over time. You know, well, after all, it's not so long ago, two years ago, certainly, where 
there was a democratic element within the essentially authoritarian politics of Russia. Harder and harder to argue that. What all this means, in my opinion, is this. Look, if the war drags on, and to be perfectly honest, unfortunately, I suspect the war will drag on, and if there are increasing problems with the Russian economy, which I think is pretty much guaranteed, then it will become probably harder and harder for Putin to resist the suggestions that essentially the country needs to be militarised, securitized, that you know perhaps elements of the economy do need to be brought under, even if temporarily, state control, that perhaps elections do indeed need to be um, suspended, purely, of course, as a temporary measure. But it's funny how these temporary measures can become surprisingly open-ended. That exactly, you know, governors need to be appointed, not elected, because they are crucial elements within the sort of the management of this beleaguered state. You know, all these kind of arguments. And therefore, this is what I mean about, you know, prospects of victory. That for people like Pertrushev, who represent a minority within the government, but a majority within Putin's inner circle, I think it's fair to say, actually... The more the war drags on, which is, after all, implicitly saying the more Russia is losing, because this was meant to be a quick and easy war, well, the more likely they are actually to politically win. That their dream of a kind of 21st century 1970s, of essentially Soviet Union without the ideology, that might well come true. And that, for me, is a truly depressing prospect which is why I wanted to get it out of the way first, before we move on to the much, much more uplifting topic of nuclear weapons. Yeah, we are, we are definitely in, 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 a, in a fun and uh, positive episode of the podcast today. So let's talk now about nuclear weapons. There has been lots of signalling from Putin and other figures within the Russian government that... Possibly, if they're pushed, if the circumstances demand it, then they might turn to the use of nuclear forces. It's always just a bit, little bit, uh, you know, nods and winks, hints and whispers. When, for example, the new RS-28 Sarmat, so-called Satan II, intercontinental ballistic missile was tested. For example, Putin said, you know, it provided food for thought for those who would want to challenge Russia. More recently, Putin suggested that if the West continues to interfere, as it sees it, in Ukraine, by the dastardly technique of actually allowing the Ukrainians to defend themselves then they may face a lightning-fast riposte from Russia. And again, he was clearly making it clear that this military riposte would be coming from, from sort of strategic forces, possibly these hypersonic uh, missiles which, which Russia has. We've had Foreign Minister Lavrov you know, warning that the dangers of military escalation into the nuclear phase you know, are, are not impossible. Well, given that the only person who is talking about, or the only country rather, which is talking about the potential for nuclear forces being used, is Russia. Um, that becomes rather sort of disingenuous. So the question is, okay, what is behind this? Now, there is a prevailing and frankly mythical notion that the Russians have something called an escalate to de-escalate notion within their military doctrine. The idea is that you start a war, you advance to a certain point at which you're fairly comfortable with your gains and maybe you don't think that you're going to be able to make any more. And then you would use just, just one or so tactical nuclear weapons to basically scare the other side into de-escalating. In other words, to allow the war to be fixed at that stage with you having already made some gains. Well, they don't actually have that. What they have, what the Russians have, is, is a notion of escalation management. That precisely, that you, know, you have a whole variety of different ways in which you try to control how your antagonist does or does not escalate. And of course, you know, that's, that's, that's much broader. It certainly does not really entail a sort of an explicit sense of the use of nuclear weapons. The Russians still say that 
although they are willing to contemplate the first use of nuclear weapons, it would only be in the context of having to defend against an existential threat against the motherland. Now, of course, the way that the Ukraine war is being framed, as it essentially is as a proxy war with NATO, rather than actually just simply a special military operation in Ukraine, nudges us slightly closer to that point. No one would really suggest that, for example, you know, reversals on the Donbass front would represent an existential threat to Russia. So I think we should treat this with considerable caution. The idea, for example, that the Russians would turn to strategic nuclear exchanges, in other words, launching you know, intercontinental missiles from their silos, their submarines or whatever, I think is something that we should pretty much be able to put out of our, our, our concerns. Really, what people have been worrying about is the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Now, just a little um, diversion on what is a tactical nuclear weapon it's a little nuclear weapon, but then again, talking about a little nuclear weapon is a little bit like talking about a moderately bonkers Patrushev manifesto. You know, we're all just simply talking about degree, and they're all pretty alarming. Russia has between 1,800 and 2,000 tactical nuclear warheads, most of which are what the Americans charmingly call dialer nukes. In other words, they actually can be modified to their yield, can be altered between less than one kiloton. A kiloton is equivalent to a thousand tons of high explosive, all the way up to typically 50, though in some cases 100. But 50 kilotons, I mean, that's more than three times the yield of, for example, Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombs. So, you know, these are still really quite terrifying things. The good news is that they haven't even been tested since 1990. And what that means is that a warhead would have to be taken out of one of 12 scattered and highly secure depots around the Russian Federation, would then have to be taken, and generally by a very, very well-secured convoy, to where it was going to be mated to whatever the delivery system was, probably an Iskander or Calibre missile, and then launched. Now, the good news about on that point is, look, this will take time, and also this will have to be done by technicians who have no real experience of having done this. So they will be doing this from instruction manuals. Now, look, I have enough trouble putting together IKEA furniture it terrifies me the thought that anyone would actually be wanting to get a you know, recommission, shall we say, a nuclear warhead, prepare it for launch, and actually launch it simply based on, on manuals, but there you go. But the point is, this is all a process which will take time and also will be visible. I think we can pretty much be sure that there is a lot of Western intelligence capacity being focused on these stocks, and, and therefore actually even just simply the, the physical transfer of a warhead may well... Um, not be unnoticed by whether it's a satellite or human intelligence or technical intelligence of some other kind, which gives us a chance to do something about it, whether it's in terms of deterring or, or whatever. More to the point, the actual value of a tactical nuke is, is questionable. There are probably not the kind of major concentrations of Ukrainian troops which would make it sort of potentially worthwhile on, in a battlefield sense. Instead, presumably, this would be regarded as an instrument of terror, a way of trying to scare the Ukrainians into some kind of surrender or concessions and, and scare the West away. But, I mean, that's, that's one hell of a gamble. Now, the th problem is, of course, that Putin today is very different from the much, much more cautious, risk-averse Putin of even, you know, a couple of years ago, shall we say. So it's hard to actually be totally confident about his, his, his rationality and his, his willingness to stick within the sort of the norms of international behaviour, considering we've seen war crimes and, and everything else. But on the other hand, we have seen signs that this is a man not totally out of control. I mean, for example, think of what happened with the Battle of Kiev, in which the Russians clearly made a very serious attempt to take you know, the, the, the national capital of Ukraine, the mother of all Russian cities. This would have been symbolically tremendously important. They failed. 
And what did they do? They didn't escalate, but they ultimately withdrew. Now, again, obviously with that withdrawal is simply because they wanted to then use their forces elsewhere, but it, but it demonstrated that it's not like Putin is yet at the point where he feels that even a tactical withdrawal is some kind of existential threat, at least to himself, if not to Russia. So instead, probably, 95 99% whatever, but anyway, almost certainly, this is just simply about signalling. This is an attempt to basically get the West to back off. And the interesting thing is the West is not backing off. The West is not taking these kind of threats seriously. And I think that's a really important and encouraging sign that we're not able and willing to be just simply manipulated by these kind of threats. The notion that came from Dmitry Medvedev, former president, now deputy chair of the Security Council, and a man who's clearly trying to reinvent himself as a hawk, and he warned Sweden and Finland that if they did join NATO, then any talk of a nuclear-free Baltic is, is a battling of the past, which presumably implies that the Russians are suggesting that they will put nuclear missiles into the Kaliningrad exclave or whatever. Now, once upon a time, these threats didn't just simply uh, you know, run strong within the Finnish and, and Swedish media, you know, but also clearly had a significant political impact. It doesn't seem to be doing anything to deter them from, from seeking to join NATO at the moment. So, you know, actually, I think we should see these threats as signs of, frankly, impotence. It's interesting, the Soviets, just like the Western leaders with whom they were dealing, were always much, much more circumspect in these kinds of rather destabilising challenges based on nuclear force, in part because they didn't need to. They had a much wider range of other instruments at their disposal. Putin does not. He doesn't have the economic instruments. He doesn't have the soft power instruments or other political instruments. All he can really rely on is threat. But I don't think that we need to take that too seriously, and on the whole, we're not. Which I suppose, actually, come to think of, it does count as a, as a slightly more optimistic and, and uplifting point than the first segment. OK, well, I will semi-quit while I'm ahead. Let's have a break. And then I'm going to talk about crime and the church. And that is, I should stress, two segments, not one. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. These next two sections are actually thanks to suggestions from my patrons, for whom thank you very much indeed. And I've been asked, first of all, to think about what the impact of the, the war in Ukraine is on Russian organised crime, and then to talk a little bit about the Russian Orthodox Church. So, two particular, distinct institutions, shall we say. Let's start with crime. First of all, in terms of the actual war effort, the honest answer is I don't think there's any real impact in the sense of whereas in Crimea and the Donbass there was clearly a role for local gangsters um, providing kind of a certain degree of political top cover for the special forces who were seizing Crimea. You know, many of the so-called local self-defence volunteers actually turned out to be thugs from local organised crime groups who'd been lined up by the Federal Security Service. And likewise in the Donbass, many of the early militias on the side of the separatists actually turned out to be either drawn from or to simply transfers of organized, local organised crime groups who realised there was a chance to convert their street muscle, shall we say, into political power and uh, you know, upgrade their firepower in the process. Well, that's fine if what you want is just some sort of thuggish local militias who can trade fire with, with other militias or just simply maintain control over regions. This kind of conflict is a very, very different affair altogether. And, I mean, as, as we've seen with some of the forces of the sort of the Donetsk and Lukansk, quote-unquote, People's Republics. Some of these are clearly properly trained and equipped combat forces. Others definitely not, and the ones that are not do not survive engagements with the enemy, given that the Ukrainian military is now an exceedingly professional and, and efficient force. So 
they're not really a factor there. Interestingly, what we are seeing with the war is a disruption of international supply routes. Ukraine was an area in which, until February, Russian and Ukrainian crime gangs continued to cooperate perfectly comfortably. We saw flows of a whole variety of illicit goods, but particularly, obviously, heroin from Afghanistan, for which there is a a, a massive and lucrative market in Europe, flowing freely. So just as a time when when Russia and Ukraine were, at, at that point, undeclared war, their gangsters were perfectly happy to make money by cooperating. The simple physical dislocations of warfare, routes being closed, it's you know, not much travel on and, and let alone trade, all that kind of thing is definitely disrupting criminal flows. We saw this, for example, with the, the wars in the Balkans back in the 1990s, where at least there it was much, much more patchy and what would happen is criminal flows through this rather under-controlled region would be temporarily disrupted, would would shift from one route to another as a bridge got destroyed here or a battle flared up there. Well, obviously, what's going on in Ukraine is is rather bigger and more systemic. So we are seeing organised crime trying to find new ways of of adapting to that. And one of those is precisely because of the constriction on movement from Russia directly westwards. You know, much more customs checks, no flights, etc., etc., actually means that Russia is looking much less attractive for certain kinds of heroin traffickers. I mean, there is still routes from Russia southwards. So, you know, people who are just looking to, let's say, to move it into perhaps the uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then out through the Caspian and so forth, that's still a possibility. But I think that, uh, you know, although new routes haven't really been institutionalized, this is going to do two things. One is it's going to strengthen the so-called southern route, which goes through Iran, Turkey, into Europe, um, which used to be absolutely dominant, then lost a certain amount of its uh, market share, shall we say, to the northern route through Russia. I think it'll, it'll become dominant again. And secondly, much more in the way of indirect routes, people using planes to, to move the heroin. But that's, that's we wait and see. That That's just my own sort of sense. Of course, what this means is that there are significant effects for what's happening to the underworld in Russia itself. And this is always the case, you know, whenever we see any major sort of economic crisis or other kind of, you know, true reordering event that in effect will will change the shape of society, the economy, the political context and so forth within it, you know, we always get this kind of a change. First and foremost, it tends to mean a consolidation. The bigger gangs, the gangs whose resources are largely embedded within either foreign currencies or political uh, alliances and affiliations, they are more likely to use this as an opportunity to pick off smaller gangs, perhaps ones which are more dependent upon the now dwindling power of the ruble. And so this tends to be a point when the big gangs go out there and, and do a bit of shopping. They identify particular gangs who have, let's say, control over turfs that look interesting or particular market shares and such like. So I think that's what we're beginning to see. What we don't yet know is whether this will essentially be a kind of consensual economic process of takeovers or whether we're going to see more in the way of violence. We haven't seen much of a flaring up of, of gang violence of late. And that's also, I think, in part because, shall we say, the security apparatus is that much more evident. But we'll have to see if that continues. There's going to be a new balance of opportunities and costs. If one thinks back to 2014, for example, one of the, for me, fascinating uh, developments, and also quite, quite ingenious ones, was you had sanctions imposed by the West, and then there were counter-sanctions, particularly on, for example, European foodstuffs, which were imposed by Moscow uh, in retaliation. But on the other hand, and we're going back to the good old cheese runners, you know, you had all kinds of commodities that, that there were still people willing to pay money for. So you suddenly had this huge upsurge in luxury foodstuffs being imported into Belarus, not because the Belarusians had suddenly acquired an appetite for, for parmigiano or whatever, but because a lot of that was then smuggled into Russia. And what that meant was that the gangs along the Belarusian border which up to this point had been something of a backwater, suddenly acquired new prominence, new wealth, new opportunities to actually run or at the very least tax 
this, these smuggling routes. And in some cases, the big boys moved in and tried to take over. In other cases, local gangs began to become much more significant. So this is the interesting thing. It, it's going to be what the, the new shape of the economic opportunities map for Russia turns out to be. And I think what we're going to see is that certainly in, in some, for example, cities which are likely to be disproportionately affected by the, the economic slowdown, particularly the, sort of the, the monocities like, like Tolyati or the central Siberian region ones that are neither benefiting from the halo effect of Moscow nor from Chinese investment. In these areas, local organized crime gangs are probably going to be weakened, which means that they'll be that much more open to takeover bids from, from beyond. And generally speaking, the interesting thing is where are still the opportunities for the kind of cross-border criminal activities and the opportunities to earn other currencies than rubles? Well, where are they likely to be? Well, the answer is probably, one, we're going to see yet another set of opportunities for gangs in the North Caucasus, as if they needed any help. If they are able to sort of build on their relationships with, for example, criminals in Georgia which, you know, still are really quite, quite strong. Perhaps more interestingly, we're going to see sort of opportunities in the South Caucasus, um, both Armenian and Azeri gangs, who have very strong networks in Russia, particularly in, in Moscow and in, in southern Russia. Well, again, they now may find themselves having new opportunities. Up to now, we haven't, for example, seen Armenian versus Azeri uh, criminal wars, despite the fact that there has been a very vicious Armenian versus Azeri war on the ground around Nagorno-Karabakh. What tends to happen is new economic opportunities tend to exacerbate ethnic tensions between the gangs because they become almost an idiom for how you explain why, in fact, you're just simply trying to fight the other gang for some kind of particular economic uh, benefit. So I think we, 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 might, we might see some sort of, shall we say, some criminal nationalism creeping into the activities of Armenian and Azeri gangs. And that will in some ways drag their Russian partners, the gangs with whom they deal, into this conflict. They might be able to manage it more, or they might actually find themselves having to, to basically take sides. Final area, and again, this is an area which really hasn't been particularly uh, developed in organised crime terms up to now, are those groups which are involved with Central Asia, but not necessarily primarily involved in heroin trafficking. Because clearly, you know, there's a lot of heroin from Afghanistan that moves through Central Asia into Russia. But then there are many, many gangs that are involved, you know, quite possibly because they, they are of mixed ethnicity or they are connected to, for example, the ethnic Russian population of, the North, of North Kazakhstan that are not actually primarily drug gangs. Now, these gangs have on the whole been pretty small scale. They are involved in you know, a bit of uh, trafficking in various commodities, like kind of knockoff counterfeit goods and cigarettes from China and that kind of thing. They're involved in a certain amount of embezzlement. They do try and sort of arbitrage the, the different opportunities across the, the borders between their country and, and Russia. But that's about it. But on the other hand, Central Asia is actually potentially going to become much more of a turntable for a whole variety of criminal activities including Russian money flowing through Central Asia into China to be laundered and therefore being used in the outside world. So again, this is an area where, where we might see new conflict in the underworld. But the final element of how the war may shape, or change the shape rather, of Russian organised crime is, again, let's assume that the war does drag on and the economy continues to grind downwards. What's the state going to do? We have a Russian state that, after all, already has form in using organised crime, both at home and abroad, as an instrument of tradecraft. Whether it's in terms of you know, small-scale activities, like you know, suppressing a particular journalist at home, or whether it's in terms of as a supplement to their intelligence operations abroad. Now, consider the, sort of the current situation there's been a really very serious crackdown on Russian intelligence operations and activities and networks abroad, which very much has limited, therefore, their, their capacity to do anything. 
at the very time when they probably want to do all kinds of things. They want to gather intelligence clearly, but quite possibly they will be thinking of ways in which they can use their covert capabilities to basically punish the West, deter it. You know, again, it's, it's a little bit like the whole nuclear thing. I mean, they, they're there in, with, with nukes, they're actually using rhetoric as a weapon. Well, here they might well be using others. And obviously there's things like cyber attacks, but they may well also be looking for other means of actually sort of, whether it's in terms of disrupting the flow of weapons or generally putting pressure on individuals or governments. And as I said, this is something that they've already outsourced to criminals in the past. One can think about, for example, the murder of the Georgian Chechen Hangoshvili in Berlin a couple of years back that turned out to be committed by a, well, allegedly committed by a contract killer who had been engaged by the FSB. But more broadly, there is a value to organised crime for the Russian state, potentially in sanctions busting. And I mean, not and again, here we're not talking about uh, illicit stocks of, of Parmesan cheese, but for example, the kind of electronic high-tech components that the Russian economy will be starved of, and particularly the defense industrial complex will need. And beyond that, money. Now, if we look at another country, North Korea, there they absolutely have institutionalized the use of organized crime as a tool of statecraft. They have Bureau 39, which, for want of a better description, we could think of as the Ministry of Crime. And the interesting thing is it carries out a whole range of criminal activities really intended to try and keep the North Korean dictatorship afloat. So it's involved in a whole range of, for example, uh, computer frauds, particularly there were actually a whole series of insurance frauds that netted actually a lot of money. And remember, if you're a country as poor as North Korea, I mean, a million euros or a million dollars means a lot. They're involved in various ways of getting round sanctions that are imposed upon them, things like uh, smuggling of coal and such like. But beyond that, they produce high-quality amphetamines, particularly for the Japanese and, and wider Asian market. And why can they produce these high-quality amphetamines? Because they use government chemical laboratories. They have produced arguably the best counterfeit $100 bills, how can they produce those? Well, because they're using the government mint. I mean, so for all these reasons, what you actually have is this fusion, or nationalisation rather, of organised crime. It becomes simply an instrument of the state, and that also means that all the resources of the state are at its disposal. I find myself wondering is if this confrontation continues long term, whether or not from the Kremlin's point of view it will decide to take the Bureau 39 route and whether that actually means formally bringing organised crime groups under the control of the state directly or on a more informal basis, making it clear that their licence to thieve depends upon their willingness to also cooperate with the authorities. It will be basically a supercharging, a turbocharging of what already happened. But as I said, I think, well, it might well be that we will see a f increasingly formal, in effect, nationalisation of crime. I mean, not obviously openly, um, but basically this sense that just as business is being conscripted in support of the state, just as individuals are being conscripted, both obviously militarily, but also more broadly, expected now to become true patriots, well, so too, the time will come for the criminals to demonstrate, are you patriots or are you traitors? And I think in those circumstances, most of them will end up being patriots. So this is something to watch. Again, not imminently, but it's, it, it, it will be an interesting sign of the real pressures that the Kremlin feels under if in the long term we see it turning more and more to organised crime and particularly cyber frauds and, and, and similar sort of ways of making money at a time when the West is clearly trying to prevent it from doing so. But now from criminals to a totally different subject, of course, the Russian Orthodox Church, where clearly we have a very strong current uh, alliance or alignment between the church and the state, which doesn't seem to be under any pressure at all by the fact that that state is now waging a, a vicious war in, well, yes, in, in the country which is in many ways was where the, the true cradle of, of, of Russian Orthodox Christianity. 
Patriarch Kirill, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, a 75-year-old who has in the past said that Putin is a, a miracle of God. And he clearly, although occasionally makes genuflections towards the importance of, of, of peace and such like, but he has also declared the current conflict sacred. Well, what's going on here? Look, in part, this is a very, very transactional relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian state. And it's one that you know goes back, one, one can find this sort of deep tradition in, in Tsarist times, that on the one hand, the church felt it had a genuine responsibility to support and preserve the state because there was a sense, well, Moscow was the third Rome. The first Rome had fallen to the barbarians with the collapse of the, by that point, Christian Roman Empire. The second Rome, Byzantium, Constantinople, had in due course fallen to Islam and Moscow, therefore, was the third and had to be the final Rome, the final hub of genuine Christianity. So obviously it was the duty of the church to support Moscow, to support the state and ensure its survival. But in return for that, it acquired all kinds of of perks and privileges. And this is something that, that continued. I mean, if one looks at what happens in the 1990s, you have the bizarre spectacle of the Russian Orthodox Church being one of the country's leading importers of cigarettes. Why? Because Boris Yeltsin had granted it extraordinary tax exemptions. And so it's involved in a whole variety of businesses. So basically, the church does well. The church is protected. The church is enriched by its alliance with the state. And the state gains the, the, the benefits of the kind of legitimacy that the church can provide. And from time to time, there are very specific issues on which the church makes its demand. The classic example was the so-called Pussy Riot case, where you had the, these um, you know, punk musicians delivering uh, what was clearly intended to be a blasphemous performance at the altar of the Cathedral of, of, of Christ the Saviour in Moscow in 2012. The first instinct of the prosecutors was apparently to, in a way, retaliate by uh, patronising them, basically saying they were just you know, silly little attention-seeking girls, giving them some, some minor sentence, uh, you know, basically a, a fine and something suspended or whatever. But then Patriarch Kirill weighed in, and he made it absolutely clear to the Kremlin that no, no, as far as he was concerned, this was a serious act of blasphemy and needed to be treated seriously. And lo and behold, Pussy Riot ended up going to prison, which in some ways was, however horrific, I'm sure the experience was at the time, but the best thing for their careers long term. So, you know, from time to time, the the church can still actually sort of call in an IOU. So it's a a very transactional business. But it's much more than that, I think, for people like Kirill, uh, who genuinely also buy into this notion that there is a civilizational struggle going on. It's quite interesting that, for example, in, 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 his, in his speeches, in which, yes, he tends to be very, very supportive, not just of, of, the, of Putin and the current regime in general, but the Ukraine war specifically, he uses gay parades as, in some ways, a metaphor for everything that's wrong with the modern world. If you don't support your state, if you don't support your culture, if you don't support your faith, what are you going to get? Gay parades. Now, personally, I have to confess, in uh, a time of corona and genocide, of modern slavery and terrorism, I'm not quite convinced that a gay parade is really the worst thing that, that, that we ought to be worrying about. But I think it says a lot precisely about his sense that this is, this is really about something quite fundamental to his faith and his, admittedly, in my opinion, distinctly retrograde notions of how society ought to be organised, what is moral, what is proper, what is, from his point of view, right. And in this respect, what's interesting is, I think this is not just simply about uh, the patriarch or the church feeling it has to support Putin. And it's not even just specifically about what's going on in Ukraine. I think it speaks to a wider process of what we could almost think of as religious nationalism. Because remember, Russian orthodoxy is just one particular part of the wider family of orthodoxy. And yet it's one actually we see increasingly is actually 
arguably much like Russia in the world community, withdrawing itself from that family. In 2018, after all, there was a schism with the, the, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which obviously was, was particularly pushed by the fact of you know, Russia's continuing undeclared war in Ukraine. But since then, you know, it's almost as if, from Kirill's point of view, that he, just like Putin, now regards the Ukrainians as traitors with everything that involves. That conflict has also brought him more and more into a sort of fairly antagonistic relationship with his notional super... Uh, superior, sorry, I almost said superhero, which is a little weird, um, though that would make for an interesting film. No, um, his notional superior, who is uh, Bartholomew, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, who is meant to be the father of this admittedly very um, fragmented, uh, sort of confederal um, faith. But, you know, but, but you know, Bartholomew has come out increasingly critical of precisely Kirill's outspoken support of, of the war. But the point is, again, this is, this is about mobilisation. This is about a time when there is no scope for loyal opposition. I mean, 270 or so priests and deacons signed an open letter criticising the war. But we've got to bear in mind that's out of, I think, approximately 20,000 of them. You know, it is not that there are not other priests who are very, very unhappy with what's going on, but it's just that they, just like ordinary Russians, appreciate that this is not the time in which it is safe to do so. So there is this question of trying to basically use this war also as a means not just of really emphasising the national dimension of the Russian Orthodox Church, because at the same time, after all, the, the many other sort of elements, sort of dioceses of the, the Russian Orthodox Church that are outside Russia are increasingly you know, even further distancing themselves from it. And frankly, Kirill seems to be willing with that. Better, fewer, but better. Better, you know, genuine patriots. But it's also about essentially asserting control. Control over the, the, the church that is there. And in this respect, it's, it's about actually kind of, in some ways, almost reshaping um, doctrine and dogma to suit. There was an interesting, there was uh, an interview in Rasiska Gazeta, again, I mean, which, which is obviously not just the official government newspaper, but increasingly given the, the earlier uh, Patrushev one, um, you know, almost becoming the place you want to go when you want to find out what the extreme hardline nationalist end of the, the establishment is thinking. And in that, um, the religious scholar Vladimir Lagoida, who is head of the Synodal Department for Church Relations with Society and the Media, snappy title. Anyway, he sort of talked very broadly about the situation, and look, there was a certain amount of exactly sort of recognition of the sort of terrible suffering and so forth. But there's a few lines I just wanted to pick up on. And he said, The church formulates its position based not on political approaches or views. Its positions cannot be at odds with the gospel. Well, that, that, that sounds actually quite encouraging. It more or less says, this is not about politics, this is about religious faith. Almost at first I was beginning to think, is he actually trying to distance himself from the official line? But he goes on, but this does not mean that the church completely ignores geopolitical factors. So, you know, he's already basically saying that, no, of course, we, th we think about the politics. And yes, it's a tragedy, for example, that the, the flock, shall I say, of the, of the Russian Orthodox Church is now divided. But, he goes on, some issues have always been resolved and will always be resolved only on the battlefield. You can't do anything about it. Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not in any way a religious person, let alone a religious scholar. I can't help thinking that I thought Jesus would have probably had something to say that maybe you can sometimes do something about it, that the battlefield is not necessarily an acceptable uh, route. But what this really means is, essentially, I think what is, what is happening is this war is being framed by the church in some ways as a crusade. And why I think this is particularly concerning for me is because this, this does do two things, really. One is it supports the demonization of Ukrainians, which I think was one of the key factors behind things like the Bucha massacre, and which will make it all the harder to actually resolve this conflict someday in the future. Not that that's been at all likely to be happening soon. But secondly, again, and, and here we have the, the Ouroboros, the, the, uh, the worm eating its own tail, um, to link this back to, to Patrushev, 
Patrushev and the Hardliners Manifesto is, is a very explicitly political one. But again, it is framed on this notion that, like it or not, Russia is now in a moral, cultural, and thus politically existential struggle with the West. And now we have Kirill, who increasingly seems to be saying the same thing himself. I mean, I, I, I do wonder at what point Kirill will himself be starting to, to push back against Bartholomew more explicitly. And again, almost sort of declare independence from the institutions of the wider Orthodox Church, the same way as under Patrushev, the, the logic is that Russia needs to declare independence from existing global norms of how nations must behave. Now, 71% of Russians profess Orthodox faith, which is interesting, actually, it's with, it, compared with 78% of Ukrainians. But, I mean, in part, that is precisely because Russia, actually, we mustn't forget, also has a large Muslim population. And look, for many of those, especially younger Russians, that profession doesn't really mean very much. But still, look, this, this, this is by no means an insignificant opinion former within Russia. And so what we're seeing is Caesaropapism. In other words, this, this essential sort of uh, identification of church and state as having common interests and the church's role being there to support the state. Increasingly evident once more. And so, so long as the state is continuing to espouse a kind of Russian nationalism that fits with the church's notion of the, of the Ruskimir, of the Russian world, well, then in some ways, this particular nationalist notion of Russian orthodoxy will continue to triumph. And if we see the Patrushevs of this world, who essentially want to see a mobilization state, a war-fighting state, which will, of course, be sanctioned by history, by culture. I mean, I say history, I mean the, the bizarre, bastardized form of history that we've seen from Putin and co. Um, culture and a wider sense of Russianness. Well, this is actually the sort of basis for a real alliance between essentially secular hardliners and essentially nationalist religious figures which is, I think, you know, a, a particularly sort of worrying example. As I said, I really would want to stress, we are not there yet. This is a, something that may be an emerging possibility. But if this war continues, and particularly if this war makes ordinary Russians feel that they are themselves being exiled from civilization, that they are being pushed out, well, then where else will they go? Where else will they find that kind of sense of, of meaning, of value, of identity? And the answer is, unfortunately, Patrushevism, Kirillism, and a defiant withdrawal from the world. And that's scary, but that is only one possible route. As ever, we'll just have to see which road Russia takes. Thanks very much for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.